Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The focus for Russia has been on using cyber tools to distract and demoralise Ukraine. There's been no decisive cyber strike, and perhaps there never will be, and there cannot be, a decisive cyber strike. Hard power still matters, right? We've seen a lot over the last few years that Future War is all about influence. The best way to influence somebody is shoot the person next to them and say, we're going to do that to you if you don't do what we tell you. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this program, we bring you the first in a series of conversations that explore the war in Ukraine. Major General Mick Ryan, former commander of the Australian Defence College, Catherine Manstead, Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX, Rory Medcalf, head of the NSC, and Will Stoltz, senior advisor for public policy at the NSC, outline their initial reactions to the unfolding conflict. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the National Security Podcast. We'll be focusing this episode um, on initial reactions to the situation in, in Ukraine, and this will be the first of a series of discussions that the college is going to bring you uh, on the long-term implications of the situation in Ukraine. Uh, we're going to start the conversation, I suppose, by getting an initial kind of take on uh, the situation as it is at, at the time of recording um, before turning to some kind of long-term reflections on the impact of the crisis that's unfolding. Um, so, Rory, did you want to give us just some of your kind of preliminary um, reactions to the situation that's unfolded over the past week or so? Look, thanks, Will. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that those of us who are watching from Australia, uh, w- w- whether national security is our business or really whether it's the the broader community, you know, the, 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 there is a sense of there is a sense of of shock and. Uh, and, and horror at what's unfolding at the at, at the conflict and the the aggression that's uh, unfolding in Ukraine with with the Russian invasion. Um, having said that, you know the National Security College wants to contribute constructively to to public awareness of these issues. There is a lot of very useful material out there in the public sphere on on, on the crisis, on the conflict. I'm sure there's a lot of um, commentary of not particularly great insider quality either, and it's very hard to discriminate through uh, the fog of war and the, the information fog. So we want to add some value there, and in the uh, the episodes we've got coming up, we'll look more closely at some specific aspects or, and dimensions of the conflict. But I guess my hope is that we can have uh, a, a bit of a, a, a curtain raiser for that conversation today introducing some of the angles we're watching very closely from Australia with some expert insights. Yeah, and let's let's start, Mick, um, with your reactions or I suppose your take on the current situation as it is in Ukraine at the moment. You know, we've obviously seen 
um, a significant application of force from the Russian military into Ukraine from many different fronts. And I think there's a great deal of commentary that suggests that you know things haven't really gone as as um, the Russians would have would have liked. But what's kind of your immediate take on where the situation is at the moment? Uh, thanks, Will. Well, the situation there has clearly not gone to according to plan from uh, Putin's perspective or his senior military leadership. So Lawrence Friedman's called Putin's strategy a delusional strategy, and from that, all problems have flowed. I think. Uh, the large build-up around the periphery of Ukraine failed to coerce or to influence Ukrainian government's decisions. And the early days of the invasion, particularly in the north and the east, have not gone according to plan. They've been slow, they've been unimaginative, and they've failed to overrule the Ukrainian defenders. Uh, and their hope would have been that um, the Ukrainians would have melted away. Um, hope is not a good course of action in war. There's been more success in the South and we'll continue to see that. I'd conclude by saying that the Russians on previous operations have a demonstrated capacity to learn, adapt and improve their performance. And I think we're starting to see that just over the last 24 hours. That will probably see the Russians return to more traditional ways of war that they prefer, which includes large-scale artillery um, rocket strikes, thermobaric weapons, and strikes from air, air-delivered weapons that will result in more destruction in the north and the east, and certainly more civilian casualties. And Catherine, I'm interested to get um, your thoughts. You know, Mick's given us a rundown there of what's taking place um, directly in the conflict zone, but there's obviously a significant range of measures that are being placed against the Russian state, both in the economic and cyber realm, which you might be more familiar with. I mean, um, can you perhaps give us a sense of kind of the scale of the Western targeting of of the Russian um, of Russian businesses and, and Russian society, and and potentially what you think might be you know the the implications of the um, cyber measures that are taking place. I'm by no means a geoeconomic expert, Will, but um, of course there is an unprecedented level of support, not just from the EU, NATO and the usual suspects, but from uh, the global community in terms of calling out Russia and also uh, imposing what I would say are unprecedented sanctions, whether that is uh, what we've seen in the move towards uh, taking Russia out of uh, access to SWIFT, uh, whether that's in terms of uh, declaratory policy calling Russia out or indeed these really uh, crippling economic sanctions. I can't think, Rory, you might have a longer memory than I do, but I can't think of anything that's been that uh, concerted in in recent history. Certainly not as rapid. Uh, nor, nor as rapid. And also could I say, and this probably comes back to where I'm most focused on this conflict in terms of the cyber and informational aspects, the so far the kind of information um, the, or the concerted informational um, advantage that those opposing Russia have got to be able to get action so quickly on the economic front but also to mobilise organisations, be they nation states uh, or uh, non-governmental organisations, uh, other economic actors around the world to take action in their own way, uh, how that impacts the conflict is yet, is yet to be seen, but an unprecedented level of action. And I think a level of action that potentially explodes the myth that Russia are the masters of information warfare 
and potentially also exposes the limits of propaganda and spin and deception uh, in influencing the outcomes of a conflict uh, when there are other um, potentially more real-world issues at play. There's never been more instant scrutiny, has there, as far as I can tell, on on, on the the details of, of, a, of a conflict in real time and the anonymous effect, for example, the fact that you've got you know this sort of enormous uh, globalized uh, network bringing its uh, forces to bear is it, it's just fascinating and 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 one hopes is having an impact on on Russia's ability to uh, to contest this. Well, I would say that um, Ukraine and its allies and supporters have had an informational advantage from the beginning. We saw uh, an unprecedented level of intelligence sharing from the US government that defanged a lot of the deception that we think Putin was going to use. Uh, so we've seen intelligence sharing, getting the uh, the letting, I suppose, the West take the initiative. Ukraine itself has also been masters of social media, highlighting uh, stories of individual um, heroics, but also Russian atrocities. At the same time, keeping control over social media for operational security reasons, um, whereas from Russia, we've seen a comparatively more clumsy propaganda uh, attempt and a much looser operational security control in terms of how uh, their soldiers are engaging on social media, for instance, which in the heat of battle can matter. I think this also demonstrates um, the advantage you have, and I mean this in a um non-gender specific way of being the good guys. Um, right from the very start, uh, President Zelensky has come across as someone who's defending uh, the right values, defending freedom and democracy. I mean, that statement, I don't need a right, I need ammunition. I mean, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, when do we hear that from from leaders? Um, and he has unified, um, in some respects, he's electrified Western audiences with his resistance. And that has provided... Uh, a degree of purpose for Ukrainian soldiers and civilians that is essential in steeling them for what will lay ahead. It's not clear to me that the Russians uh, invading the Ukraine have a similar sense of purpose, and I think we've seen that in poor morale and in some of the other troubles uh, that they've had. There's a whole playbook there that Taiwan, for example, should be thinking very hard about if it faces aggression in the future, but maybe we'll come to that in a future episode. Mm. I think there's a huge amount of lessons for our region Mm. on that. It's not a template. It never is. Every war is different. Uh, But there will be themes that will rhyme and there will be lessons that we and others in the Western Pacific will have to learn from this conflict. It's particularly fascinating to see what is the emergence of potentially the the largest um, insurgency really in the last 100 years. I mean, you've got Ukraine, a population of 40 million people. Recent polling suggested that over 50% of the Ukrainian population would be willing to take up arms um, to fight Russian occupiers. In population terms, that's really only comes close, I suppose, to um, the population of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. But I think what's really important, uh, the distinction here is that you're seeing a very, very well-armed, you know, um, armed by by Western supporters, well-armed population in, in the form of the Ukraine people. But in addition to that, it is not um, a small group of partisans or religious militants within the population that will be fighting this war. It is the population. Mm. Um, and to my mind, what that means is that there are a number of options in front of Western countries to um, fight this fight below the threshold of traditional conventional warfare. 
Um, and it's, I'm, I'm, we may not know for many years until the material is declassified, but it's going to be quite fascinating to see the application of covert action in the context of this in terms of supporting um, Ukraine uh, forces in, um, in the field, but then also the targeting that will take place um, against the, you know, the ruling elite of, of Russia as well. I think Putin has maintained a significant grasp on power over Russia for, you know, obviously many decades now, but, but I don't know. I mean, what's everyone's take in, in the sense of how much hope can we put in the Russian elite to actually respond to the Western pressures and potentially change, um, change the leadership and change the outcome? There's a lot in that. Um, I'd go back to the Ukrainians actually have form with uh, conducting resistance and insurgent operations both during the Second World War mm. against the Nazis and just after the Second World War against the Soviets. So there's form there. I would say if there is to be an insurgency and there's been some good scenario modelling out of CSIS in Washington, D.C. on this and Emily Harden was part of that or led that work and I'd, I'd recommend it. But I think it's going to be different to the kind of um, Indigenous support we provided in places like in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I think this isn't a special forces mission. This will just be training soldiers to fight both inside and outside the borders of the Ukraine. It will be training cyber warriors um, and there'll be a whole lot of other things you can do in a military sense outside the diplomatic, economic and information fights. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So, Roy, shifting the conversation somewhat, I'd, I'd be really interested to get your um, take on what you think the long-term implications of this crisis might be for, um, you know, for diplomatic relationships and, and particularly, I suppose, for the relationships that um, Western countries have started to build in the Indo-Pacific. Well, and it is a, it's a global uh, set of consequences that this um, this crisis, this conflict is going to have. It's very early days, but I would be watching very closely, uh, obviously, to see the way that that China is um, is responding or not responding, but also the way that countries like India are um, adjusting. To begin with, uh, looking at this from a humanitarian point of view, from a rules-based order, sovereignty, liberal democratic uh, point of view, from an anti-war point of view, it's disappointing to see a country like India uh, a great democracy, abstaining, for example, in um, critical um, votes on the UN Security Council. At the same time, there must be some very deeply uncomfortable conversations happening behind the scenes in, let's say, the Indian policy establishment. Um, 
even some interesting conversations happening in a place like China where for all of the um, the trumpeting of this special uh, partnership, this, this, this new axis with Russia in recent weeks, uh, there are plenty of ways in which I think Russia's uh, or Putin, I should say, Putin's aggression uh, is decidedly unhelpful for China's interests. As I said, it is um, setting, if you like, a, a playbook for resistance. Uh, I think it's, to be honest, I think it's actually um, postponing uh, the date of any plausible attack on Taiwan. It's also galvanising Europe. It's galvanising Germany as a military power in the right way. Um, you know, an argument could be made that in time the United States will be able to focus less of its mil- military wherewithal on Europe because of this crisis rather than more. Um, and so we should not assume that this means that for the next 5, 10, 15 years, uh, America's ability to lead coalitions in the Indo-Pacific is suddenly out the window. So there's a huge number of variables in play and nothing that I've said there is prediction, but there's some of the angles of speculation I'd be, I would be looking at. Uh, but I do take a particular interest in India at the moment because, uh, you know, in many ways, it's a um, a swing state in global opinion. It aspires to be a leader of the developing world. It aspires to offer a kind of third way. Uh, but the idea that I think has um, caused a lot of the paralysis in Indian diplomacy on this issue, the idea that India needs Russia because of China, is I think going to become pretty rapidly um, diminished in the days and weeks ahead. The idea that India can somehow rely on Russia as an arms supplier to counter Chinese aggression uh, that threatens Indian sovereignty is going to have less and less traction in um, in India. All of these things we need to watch. And then, of course, winding back finally for Australia, where we're recording this from and where we're looking at this from, what does it mean for small and middle powers in the Indo-Pacific where we face uh, we face coercion, if you like, from China? We certainly do not face, thankfully, the kind of blanket military invasion that, um, that, that Russia has inflicted on Ukraine. But some countries that are frontline states with China could argue that the potential is there for them, and certainly Taiwan is in that basket. We're all watching this incredibly closely and looking to draw lessons that will strengthen our bonds with one another rather than diminish them. And I guess I'm mildly confident on that score while also very anxious about what the days ahead will bring for Ukraine. Mm. You didn't mention there the UK, France and and Canada and, and other countries that I suppose have been on the periphery of the Indo-Pacific. Do you think the events in Europe are going are gonna to stymie their stated desire to become more focused on this region? Oh, I think that's part of maybe a longer conversation we can have further on. It's very, very early days. Mm. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, Britain or France were ever going to be the decisive military powers in the Indo-Pacific was, um, you know, it was a myth before this war and it will remain um, a, you know, a dream after this war. It's, it's not real. They do contribute. They will contribute. Of course, uh, it's understandable that they'll contribute a lot more now to their own defence and the defence of Europe in the the months and years ahead. But you could argue that that, in fact, will uh, encourage and empower the United States and others to do more in the Indo-Pacific, and incidentally, Japan as well, because in a sense, you know, Japan is to the Indo-Pacific what Germany is to Europe. Uh, imagine if there were a crisis tomorrow that 
that, that compelled Japan to double its defence spending mm. from 1% to 2% of GDP, you would have an equally decisive impact. And we can perhaps one day attribute all of this to uh, Putin's uh, hubris and stupidity in recent weeks. To my mind, the world has taken a sharp lurch sideways in terms of the prospects of stability and a predictable um, strategic environment. And and I would like to see, I suppose, some deep thinking, and I'm sure it will happen in Australia about reevaluating our own policy settings and, and, and policy um, commitments. You know, how, how do we seek power and influence and to shape events, um, you know, when uh, potentially the conflagrations are happening far from our shores? You know, we've seen the Australian government respond uh, to this crisis with um, quick sanctions and the application of, of cyber capabilities. Um, Catherine, I'm interested to get your take on, you know, how effective you think Australia can be in the application of our cyber capabilities, you know, in conflicts like this. Well, I know this is a fast-moving conflict, so unless something has changed while I've been sitting in this room, I think what we've committed to do is train and provide some assistance, and that's more of a defensive um, suggestion than it is um, us going in with a big cyber cannon. But what I'd say, I've picked up a few mentions of cyber around the room, and it's mm. a useful time to bring them together. Rory, you mentioned anonymous. Uh, Mick, you mentioned kind of the role of cyber warriors in this, and, and we're looking as well at cyber assistance to defend Ukraine. My observation thus far, not wanting to, of course, stray into into prediction that I can't go because this is fast, fast evolving, but I actually think what we've seen so far has exposed the limits of mm. cyber uh, as certainly as a game changer and even as, you know, one of the more important things in a conflict because, and this has been in academia, a long-standing debate. Is cyber a game changer or is it really uh, something more along the margins? And what we've seen so far is, yes, absolutely, this was a cyber war before it was uh, a, a kinetic war and it's a, cyber is a key plank of Russia's hybrid strategy. But the focus for Russia has been on using cyber tools to distract and demoralise Ukraine. There's been no decisive cyber strike, and perhaps there never will be and there cannot be a decisive cyber strike. And even, yes, we've seen um, as part of Ukraine's mobilisation this fantastic idea of mobilising uh, Ukrainians using a Google form, I think, to get uh, citizens uh, involved in the cyber fight. Anonymous, the kind of loose collective global hacking outfit, has done some things in terms of, of hitting back at Russia, but mostly in the area of website defacement, uh, cutting off access um, to uh, Russian media for a short period of time, DDoS attacks, these more low-level, low-sophistication attacks. And I think that's an interesting observation so far that, yes, you can use cyber for destructive means, but when the stakes are war, there are other tools at your disposal to achieve a destructive effect that may be a lot simpler and even more cost-effective than cyber. Mm. I um, think hard power still matters, right? I mean, we've seen a lot over the last few years that future war is all about influence, it's all about this, it's all about that. Um, the best way to influence somebody is shoot the person next to them and say, we're going to do that to you if you don't do what we tell you. Violence and influence have always been mm. two sides of the same coin in war. Um, we should not discount more violence and more large-scale combat operations uh, in the future. That's been the past um, 5,000 years of human history. Uh, there's no reason we are done with war just yet. Can I just ask you a quick question, Mick? I know you've, I mean, you've published recently on the future of war uh, and, you know, at one level, it's 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 probably a bit confronting for you in a way to have you know the, the very topic that you know you you really hung your intellectual hat on being the um, 
the, the issue that is going to dominate, I think, so many of our lives this year and, and, and for time to come. Um, do you anticipate that uh, there's something unique about this conflict in Ukraine or is it uh, is it likely to influence how governments and militaries think about war right around the world for years to come? Um, I think there's more continuities in this than there are changes, to be quite frank. Mm. I mean, the next war is always coming. That's, once again, 5,000 years of history. We just like to ignore it from time to time because it suits us to do so. Um, but there will be um, a lot of lessons that different countries can draw out of this if they have the mind to dedicate resources to learning lessons. You can guarantee uh, the Central Military Commission in Beijing will be looking at this mm. closely, as will the Americans and a few other highly professional, top-notch military organisations. We need to be doing that in our country. Um, and lessons of balancing both combat and influence activities, short-range versus long-range capabilities, uh, deployability versus logistic support capabilities, um, but probably most importantly, our capacity to think about advanced military concepts and build the leaders and planners that are able to uh, undertake them at every single level to the highest levels will be very important for our country moving forward. And it's on that topic of kind of evaluating and learning lessons that um, we're hoping to really dive in over the next couple of weeks uh, and really rise above the fray of the, the current news cycle and provide some kind of deep analysis of the long-term implications of this. Um, the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at um, the economic dimensions. Um, the Rory touched on the, um, the implications for the Indo-Pacific and we're hoping to look deeper at the implications for um, Australian strategy. But um, Rory, uh, Catherine, Mick, thanks so much for helping us start the conversation here uh, on the National Security Podcast um, and hope to have you back uh, very shortly. Thanks. And uh, I guess on, on that note, I think we'd probably all, all uh, end with um, thought, thoughts and wishes for the people of Ukraine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.